Good morning, everyone. Thank you for attending Pain Week here. If you have not yet already, please download the Pain Week app. We welcome all feedback on uh, the event and, of course, any of the sessions. This is course code SIS01, brain-based biomarkers for pain, objective measures of pain, or a journey down a rabbit hole. Our distinguished speaker today is Dr. Sean Mackey, who's a Redlick professor of anesthesiology at Stanford University, go Cardinal. And his contact information is on the slide. So with that, please help me welcome Dr. Mackey. Thank you, Joe. Uh, and my Twitter handle's there, too, in case anybody wants to tweet anything out. Um, presumably, you're here, at least in part, because you're interested in the role of the brain in pain. And so we'll, we'll make that basic assumption. Why else are people here for this particular talk? Anyone just put a hand up and just tell me what, what the interest in this space is? Any takers? What, why are you here? Uh, we're doing a clinical trial on different types of neuromodulation and having some sort of quantitative data to say, is it working or not? Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Let me get rid of this because it's causing some noise. Anybody else? Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this will be fun then. This will be fun because I am going to, I'm addressing that. And I'm hoping, so you're hearing, a, you know, you're hearing the extremes of the perspectives. You're hearing, um, I don't know if you're from, you know, representing industry or an academic institution. Either way, you know, can we develop brain-based biomarkers that will be an objective measure of whether somebody uh, is either in pain but more saliently, are they getting a, a effective uh, treatment response? And then on the patient side, large numbers of patients that are feeling invalidated these days about their pain and what are... Uh, you know, what are the uses of this technology? And then also what we're going to get into are what are the ethical dimensions of this? Now, I've scheduled this for about a 40-minute talk. We've got 15 minutes here, so I want to leave time for Q&A, and I'm hoping we can get a good discussion going uh, to, to talk about this spectrum. So by, by way of background again, uh, I'm the division chief at uh, Stanford for pain medicine. I've been there for about 20 years on faculty. I'm a physician scientist. I take care of people with pain. I oversee a, one of the largest uh, academic uh, comprehensive interdisciplinary programs in the country. And I run a large research enterprise uh, where our vision is to predict, prevent, and alleviate pain through science, education, and compassion. And one of my missions in life is to try to bring our research information and translate it into something that's going to be of clinical value to the people uh, who are suffering from pain. To get out of the way of my disclosures, I really don't have any. As I frequently say, all of my conflicts are with the National Institutes of Health. I am working hard to get more conflicted by them. Uh, I'm leaving here. I was supposed to be here all week for pain week, and I fly out in just a few hours because I've got a big center grant going in in three weeks. But I wanted to be here um, to, uh, to have uh, this discussion with you. Um, I don't accept any industry money. It's not that I'm anti-industry. It's because I do a lot of policy work also, and I've just found it easier to be more effective when I, I, I have a, a distance there. Let's, these are the learning objectives. They're in your slide deck. 
The PDFs were downloadable um, for you. You should be able to access those, or it'll be on a USB drive. I added in two other slides at the very end that are text slides. I'll mention what those are. And uh, it'll, you're not missing anything if you don't have those in your deck. But if you uh, really want those two slides, just uh, email me. OK. We've spent the last 15 or more years now, maybe close to 20 years, uh, changing people's way of viewing pain. If you went back several decades, people questioned whether or not pain even required an active conscious brain uh, for its experience, whether the cortex actually played any role in pain. And now we all accept that you know, it's clearly the, the place where uh, nociceptive information is integrated and becomes this experience of pain that's modulated by all sorts of other factors. Our cognitions, our beliefs, our emotions, um, things like placebo expectation, uh, all of these, and we're doing a better job in mapping these out. Uh, one of my postdocs, Katie Martucci, uh, and I just authored a review paper in anesthesiology on this that uh, you can download. Uh, she's taking a faculty position at Duke very shortly. And we, we showed where many of these areas have mapped out, what we understand. And I will share with you that these areas and the functions that I have uh, uh, ascribed here, it's an overly simplistic view because it's not that this center does only this and nothing else. All of these brain regions are, in fact, in this integrated network that is talking with each other. As was alluded to in uh, two of the audience's uh, points that were brought up, we are all searching for uh, a painometer, if you will, a uh, objective measure of pain, something that will help translate what has inherently been subjective and is subjective and is subjective into something that we can uh, quantify. And why do we need this? Because there are times when self-report fails us, uh, for the very young and for the very elderly, also for the infirm, those in the ICUs, they uh, are not able to articulate their pain. But I think more importantly, as this gentleman was alluding to, it's, it's not so much that we want to be able to determine if somebody is in pain or not in pain. We're really looking for objective biomarkers of treatment response, and I'm going to get into that, I think, in the next slide. I think that's much more interesting. The legal system, I'm contacted on a regular basis about doing brain imaging on people to either prove or disprove a case of whether somebody has pain. Uh, I'll show you the one legal case I took on and how that jump-started, I think, a lot of uh, what we're going to talk about. We've, there's been a lot of efforts to get this going in objective biomarkers from heart rate variability to skin conductance to pupillary responses, uh, EEG, and to date, all of them have failed. They've all failed. Many of those measures do correlate with the subjective experience of pain, but in fact, what they're really getting at is more a degree of autonomic arousability. You know, how, how aroused is that person? The question is, can we use brain imaging there? And you might say to me, well, you know, Mackie, haven't we already cracked this nut? You just got done saying we've got 15 years of brain imaging, of opening windows into the brain to see where uh, pain is processed and perceived. And I would say, no, that we haven't met the criteria for establishing that we can use brain imaging. And that's one of the key things I want you to learn from this, is what are the standards that we need to hold this technology to before it is useful in the clinic and the research and in the legal sector? 
So what we have all, and by the way, let me be also clear just to broaden this out as you're thinking about things as you leave pain week and you go back home. Everything I'm saying about brain imaging also applies to things like genomics and uh, uh, inflammatory biomarkers. And that's what this gentleman was also alluding to is there's all sorts of areas of biomarker interest. And the, 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 the discussion here and the methodology, very much analogous. So let's get back to this story. What we have done over the last 15 to 20 years is we do the following. We take somebody, um, typically it's a Stanford student in my lab, and we poke them with a sharp stick or we uh, put a hot probe on them and we cause them pain and we see what the brain response is. And the, the, the techniques are much more sophisticated than that now, but that is in essence what it is. We're looking at where the brain activates for a known condition of pain. But if I give you this pattern right here, if I just hand you this pattern of brain activity and I say to you, is that a brain in pain? Does that brain represent somebody in pain? The question is, can you determine that? And up until very recently, the answer was no. That could have represented a variety of different things. The cingulate cortex is activating here. Cingulate cortex activates in damn near everything as you, you folks know. So that's not specific to pain. It could be anything else. This actually was a slide from um, some of the early work I did on real-time fMRI, real-time brain control, where we target the cingulate cortex. But the bottom line is we haven't figured out yet and with a high degree of uh, sensitivity, specificity, negative and positive predictive value that that represents this person in pain. Let's dive down a little deeper into this biomarker story, shall we? So, as this gentleman was alluding to, we need biomarkers of pain. And so I've broken down these biomarkers into different categories for you. And these include the following. We want diagnostic markers of pain where we can determine whether somebody is in or not in pain. We want predictive biomarkers to determine risk factors for developing disease or disorders. In our case, in the pain realm, what we want are to determine whether somebody who, before getting an injury, is going to develop persistent pain or maybe even persistent opioid use. And by the way, surgery is nothing more than a controlled injury. So we would like to know, wouldn't you like to know before somebody goes into surgery whether they're going to be that 3 to you know, 10% of people that develop persistent pain after a significant surgery? We want prognostic markers that are going to predict outcome, the natural history of a condition. In other words, whether somebody in chronic pain that you have with you now is going to get better or worse down the road. We want to, look, it's a, it's a, we want to predict the future with them. We want efficacy markers, toxicity markers, to detect side effects, and surrogate outcome measures. All of this we are wanting to put together, including the inflammatory and the genomic markers, to help us get to that holy grail of the personalized pain medicine approach, where we have targeted therapies that work for a particular patient in a particular situation. Now, I'm going to be focusing a lot of this discussion in the early part, taking you through the history up until where we are now on diagnostic markers. Uh, I'm going to show you uh, some of our work and other people's work, and I'm going to just tell you right up front I don't find this particular biomarker here of much interest. I find it boring because, as I said, if I want to know whether my patient is in pain, I will simply ask them. I don't need 
a brain image to tell me whether the person in front of me is in pain if they tell me they are. But we have to walk before we run. We have to do this basic foundational research before we can get to where we want to go. And this slide kind of illustrates one of uh, those vulnerable populations and uses. And uh, this does have... Can we turn the audio up? Is the audio guy still here? Ah, I don't know if we can get a little more volume. The K3 indicator registers a level of pain. Now watch it as I turn it on. Now that's what he's been going through. I've never seen anything like it. No wonder the poor devils go mad. All right, don't we all want the K3 indicator? <laughs> right? Okay. So imagine if we didn't play that with the audio and you were just watching that clip again. Could you tell me, by the way, from that, um, that what we were seeing, just watching Spock there, was he in pain or was he delirious? Because in the ICU, they often look very much the same, but they're quite different. The treatments are quite different. So this is an example of where we want to be able to specify that thing that we're trying to measure. We'll get into that. So we're going to talk a little bit now about diagnostic markers, but before getting there, I just want to tell you a little bit about the historical journey on this, and I'm only going to spend a few minutes on this. <coughs> and this all started with a legal case back uh, in 2008. And this has been written up now in multiple popular press articles. And I was uh, contacted by a defense attorney. And he was representing this company, Western Emulsion, which is involved with um, uh, asphalt and construction. And there was a, a worker who was laying down superheated asphalt, and some of it sprayed onto his arm, and he got a bad chemical burn. And he had chronic pain and he couldn't work. So the prosecution, um, what they did is they contacted uh, Joy Hirsch, who is a noted cognitive neuroscientist out on the East Coast. I used, just, I used to just refer to her as Dr. X. I didn't want to out her, but then the media did that for me. And, uh, and she's very good. She's an incredibly talented cognitive neuroscientist. And she did a bunch of fMRI scans in which what she did is she had him squeeze a ball in his right hand and then squeeze a ball in his left hand. They brushed his affected arm on one side and they brushed his affected arm on the other side. And they saw the difference in brain activity between those two states. And she concluded that specific additional activity and the blah, 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 Overall, these findings are consistent with an indicative of a neural system that underlies Mr. Kosh's experience of pain. She said that they have proved that he has pain. They want to enter this into court testimony. And that from Joy's point of view, uh, pain is just a, it's nothing more than a sensory effect. It's a special case of standard, ordinary, garden-variety sensory stimulation that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I should mention to you that Dr. Hirsch does not study pain, doesn't take care of people with pain, um, and her view, in my opinion, was this very Descartian, very linear type of view, uh, 
that, that was misplaced, and that she will testify that the margin of error in her protocols gathering of voxel information, which is where you know, the individual, if you will, pixels of images that we have, are well within the margins of error courts that accepted in other cases, and they base this on several decisions, one of which was the probability of fruit fly infestation on the order of 1 in 10,000. What they were doing is drawing probabilities of what we do in analysis of imaging to fruit fly infestations. And so uh, they contacted me, and I, I, I decided to take this on because it was particularly interesting. Does anybody have any opinions about what I've just outlined for you, about kind of the merits of this? Does this convince you that this person had pain? Any takers? Have we met the bar? Have we met the threshold for what uh, is needed? No. Emphatically no. Emphatically no. I just thought it was complete garbage, utter hogwash, and uh, that they were doing a lot to obfuscate the facts and define fMRI as a diagnostic tool, which in 2008 we couldn't do. It just, we, there's no way we could do it. And putting aside my visceral reaction to this, by the way, I want to let you know, I believe that the gentleman who had the injury had chronic pain. I, I, I was absolutely convinced he had chronic pain, but I was involved in this not to address whether he had chronic pain, but to address the, the validity of this test. And what I felt is it didn't meet, at the very least, these two validity questions which are needed for any test that we do in healthcare. It has to have analytic validity, which is measuring the extent to what it claims it measures, and clinical validity, its ability to predict the presence or absence of a disease, in this case, chronic pain. And it's got to meet certain thresholds for sensitivity, specificity, negative, and positive predictive value. And so they had done this, but they had not done that. The case was settled. I argued. I thought I wrote these incredibly brilliant rebuttals. They were concise and they were tight. And the other side submitted literally boxes, boxes of pain neuroscience information. They would put in almost whole textbooks and admit into testimony. Um, and they just completely overwhelmed the judge. And I got a real view of what goes on in the legal system around these cases. The case was settled for, I think, $800,000, and uh, we moved on. During the same time, I had given a talk at this lecture that Hank Greeley, who's a noted bioethicist and attorney at Stanford, that we couldn't do this, that this was not yet possible to do. Too much individual variability in pain, and we're not going to get there because it's this human, unique experience. So I come away from this, and two of my very bright um, Two of my very bright research coordinators and Justin Brown here, who's now on faculty at Simpson College, said, hey, we can do this. And they came and asked me for some money to go scan these people because they had learned how to do some machine learning approaches. And that was where I closed out my lecture, by the way. I spent 50 minutes saying you can't do this. And the last 10, I said, but if you're going to do this, you're going to use some of these more uh, coming into vogue machine learning approaches. But I don't think it can work. So they came to me, and they said they wanted to do this, and being the very compassionate mentor that I am, I said, you know what, I'm going to give you money to go off and run this experiment. And the reason for that is because it's a good lesson for you to learn in failure, because this isn't going to work. But you'll be able to learn from your mistakes, and you'll be better scientists for it. And that's what we're here for. So very briefly, I got to tell you, I used to spend a few minutes on the machine learning slides. We're not going to do that because by now you guys are inundated with the concepts of machine learning, and uh, it's in all parts of our lives. So to make a long story short, what um, 
Justin and Neil did is they took uh, eight subjects and they caused them pain. And we knew what the state was. They knew they were in pain or not in pain. And we trained uh, a support vector machine, a linear support vector machine, to develop a pattern, a signature of brain activity that we thought would predict in those eight people. And then what they did is they took another eight people and they ran exactly the same experiment, except they, they had the computer guess whether the person was in pain or not. And so then they came to me and they said, hey, we were surprised. Uh, we got 87% accuracy with this. And so once again, being the very compassionate mentor I am, I said, I don't believe you. Go run another eight. I, I, it just, it, I just couldn't believe it. They ran another eight, and they got exactly the same responses. So we then set out to uh, publish this, and it was the hardest paper in my career I've ever published. I started at the top, and I had to work my way down because there was always reviewers who said, you can't do this. You cannot objectify that, which is a subjective. But we finally got it in. Um, and we found a signature, a pattern of brain activity that involves these following areas. The area that was the most predictive, by the way, was this area bordering the posterior insular cortex and the uh, somat secondary somatosensory cortex. And that's this guy right here. That alone accounted for about 67% accuracy. Nothing to brag about. But when you start combining all of these regions, you get up into that near 90% accuracy. So that went out, got a lot of attention. A lot of excitement about this. There was one guy who was taking some real shots at us, and I, I always like just to show this. And scientists at Stanford University are now training a computer to, to detect when people are in pain. You know, how dependent are we getting on technology? Is that really difficult to detect when someone's in pain? Like you see a guy lying on the ground with an axe in his head. <laughs> Honey, hand me the iPhone. Well, you want to scan this guy, see if he's. A, you know, I think he's hurting. Yeah. This, we're still trying to win Leno over. All right, I'm just I'm going to move now through again uh, through quickly history to where we are, where it starts to get I I think more interesting. Um, Tor Wager, a, a friend and uh, collaborator, did exactly the same type of study and extended it. He took four of his previously published studies, reanalyzed the data, and he too had a real hard time getting this published. He spent a long time trying to get this in, but he ultimately was able to get it in the New England Journal of Medicine. And he bumped up the sensitivity and specificity to around 94%. But more importantly, I think he also was able to distinguish between physical somatic pain and the pain of uh, emotional pain. This was from an older study he did on the pain of social rejection. So... We're starting to lay the groundwork. Now we need to test out different types of pain and see whether this type approach will work. And so here, I'm going to go back in time also. I used to do some work in empathy, and I've been mapping empathy. Um, I did mapping of empathy for several years. This social construct that binds all of us together that causes us to reach out and want to help somebody. And you know, we, what we did is we caused people pain in the scanner, and then we showed these videos. Oh, I was supposed to I was supposed to warn you. One more time. So, we would show these videos. Now, yeah, I know. How many of you felt that? Okay. It's, we, I will tell you, we did not allow clinicians in the scanner because we thought you would all be desensitized. Um, what we found is some unique networks that represented your state of physical pain, and this is the red areas here. A lot of those, these are unique here, that uh, middle insular, anterior insular, midbrain areas, those that were... Uh, more related to your other pain, in other words, the 
uh, empathy of pain is these blue areas, and then we put out the yellow areas and non-anatomical connections. So while they, um, there was some overlap, there was also distinct differences. Now let's move forward to another study that Tor did, and he, in essence, did the same type of experiment where they either had somatic pain, we, they caused them pain, or vicarious pain, which is another term if you, we're going to use here for empathy of pain. And the long and the short of it is that they trained a support vector machine, and what they were able to determine is they could separate out physical pain from this empathetic pain and do it with rather high sensitivity and specificity and identify that there were different uh, brain signatures, if you will, different brain patterns for each of these. By the way, I think one of the points that I forgot to make with Tor's um, earlier study was this, and that is there's a problem in neuroimaging with replication studies, and his pattern that he came up with overlaps, it looks like almost exactly with the same pattern we have, which is nice that they are, in fact, replicating and we're, we're seeing uh, common results. Okay, let's move on to something more interesting, chronic pain. Can we classify chronic pain? So after we put out the first study in acute pain, we then took on chronic pain. And so here what we did is I recruited 47 people with chronic low back pain and compared it against age and gender matched controls who didn't have pain. And we did another linear support vector machine. Uh, for those geeks in the audience, it was using a leave one pair out cross-validation model. And we end up with about 76 um, percent accuracy, sensitivity, and specificity, and that we ended up with a lot of the usual suspects that have been identified in representing chronic pain, but also a number of them that haven't been that I thought was particularly interesting, particularly areas of the occipital cortex that we usually don't focus attention on. Now, there's a key caveat here, and that is this group of patients was incredibly homogeneous. They, had, uh, they were on no medications, they had no Axis one or Axis two issues, no mood, no anxiety, no depression, no anything. They had no ridiculous symptoms. How many of you see these patients in your clinic? <laughs> it, it took me two years to find 47 people. I, I, not a single one of those people represented anybody I've ever seen in my clinic. But I, why did I do that then? I did that because we have to do good science first. And we have to have homogeneous populations to be assured that what we're measuring is really what we think we're measuring. So we extend that now. We extend this into the MAP Research Network, which is an NIH-funded, multi-center, multi-state effort to characterize pelvic pain. And we all, through I think five or six sites, collected many hundreds of people with uh, pelvic pain. Katie Martucci, that's the... Uh, uh, the young investigator I mentioned before that's taking a faculty position shortly at Duke uh, ran this study, and what she did is across multiple sites was able to combine the data and show that with about 73% accuracy and actually 80% accuracy when we did some additional feature reduction, we could classify whether a woman has pelvic pain or not. And this was nice because this was a more heterogeneous population, and it was across multiple states and multiple scanners. We've now been moving this forward, and I'm getting up to much more contemporary uh, research. This one was just out in the last year or so. And 
One of the key messages that came out of the MAP network around pelvic pain, we went into this with this idea that we were going to be developing these great biomarkers and that it would be highly deterministic of whether somebody had pelvic pain or not. And it turns out the number one thing that was the strongest, the strongest measure was the number of items a man or woman with pelvic pain checked off on their body map. And what we found is that those who had isolated pelvic pain were much different phenotypically than those who had pelvic pain plus more widespread pain. And that probably comports with what you would believe in your clinical experience, that widespread bodily pain, um, these, these, these people tend to be more challenging to, to manage. So what we did is we trained, a, again, a support vector machine across a lot of data, looking at localized versus widespread pain. And here, using brain networks as a way of classifying. And what we found is that areas in the frontal parietal network were highly predictive of whether somebody had widespread pain or more localized pain. And so once again, we're, we're getting more and more nuanced in our ability to tease apart these different populations and different conditions. So at this time, it's worth mentioning and just kind of plant my flag in the sand. And I've been having this position, and it hasn't changed in 10 years since I got into this. And that is, I am of strong belief that this should not yet be used to replace a self-report of pain, but rather to augment it. I hope we can get to that point, that it's not ready for clinical purposes at this time. It definitely should not be used in the medical legal environment. And then I recently added this in because I'm going to show you some work that I did um, with the IASP in a paper we just published. And that is, uh, the lawyers will disagree with me on what I have learned in dealing with the legal environment. And this is, they really don't care what I think about how it should be applied. That, and we all have to come to grips with that as clinicians that the law system works under a different set of rules than the way we work. And that was a real eye-opener uh, for me and other colleagues. And I am very concerned about inappropriate use of this technology. Now, my slides got flagged by CME when I first sent them in because they saw these slides thinking I was promoting this company. And they said, pull them out. And I, I said, no, I, I really want to leave them in. And here's the reason. I gave a talk like this in Japan at the IASP meeting. Um, and I pointed out this company is a company that was charging you money to determine whether or not you had pain. And I was very critical of it. And I said, this is an example of this misuse of this technology that it's not ready for prime time. Somebody came up to me after the talk, and they said, you know, I pulled up that site while you were talking about it just to take a look. Were you aware, by the way, that on, their, um, on some of their pages, on their press release pages, they're using your research to promote their work. <laughs> so, you know, this, this was an MSNBC spot I did many years ago, obviously, and some of the articles that uh, have been published by us and Tor. So I wrote the CEO, and I gave a cease and desist, please take all references of me off, and they did. And I believe the company just subsequently folded. But whenever you have a new technology, there will be enterprising companies that will want to take advantage of that from a commercial standpoint. It's the American way, folks. So, recognizing that we were, Pandora's box had been opened up, we all, a number of us came together and we all felt that 
we needed to have a, some consensus documents on stating up front what is appropriate and inappropriate use of this. So Karen Davis led this effort with the ISP. We published this paper, I believe, just this last year. Yeah, 2017 in uh, Nature uh, Reviews. And we put forward the following. And what, what I, one of the things I brought to this work, to that task force, was I had done a lot of background work on if we're going to get there, how are we going to do it right? And from a scientist and an, and, a, and an engineer, I hate reinventing the wheels. I want to learn from smart people who've been there before us. And so what I did is we drew, I drew upon the genetics field that had predated us by 20 years. And they developed this ACE network. And it stands for analytical validity, clinical validity, clinical utility, and uh, ethical, legal, and social implications. And they put forward this framework in developing genetic tests. And I'm going to get into more detail of that. But right now, the point I want to make is that we are right still. Um, well, it looks like I'll get to where we are in just a moment. So analytic validity is really the extent to which this test measures what we claim it measures. And we have to, in this, account for a wide heterogeneity of different patients. That's why I said the low back pain study I did, it worked. It was a proof of concept. It was a solid study in a homogeneous group of patients who don't represent who we take care of. Clinical validity means it has to, it has to demonstrate that it can predict a clinical state or outcome. And here, we can draw upon classic statistics and epidemiology with sensitivity, specificity, but more importantly, also negative and positive predictive value that take into account the baseline prevalence of the condition, which means ultimately you have to do this on huge numbers of people. The clinical utility of it, this point here, is, is the darn thing of any value to us? You know, we can go build a widget, a tool, but if it doesn't actually provide added value, then what is the point? And as I mentioned, I don't particularly find the whole diagnostic biomarker aspect of just determining, is this person in front of me in pain or not, of much clinical utility. But the predictive biomarkers, the outcome biomarkers that this gentleman was getting at, of incredible value. And then we also have to be wary of these ethical, legal, and social implications. And so I would state this is where we are right now in the field. And we're moving fast. So, ha. Huh. So these are the key points up from now um, that we should use as an adjunct rather than a platonist for sub subjective test, that we should not use it as legal advice, and we should use it only to understand the brain mechanisms, factors, and potentially targets. This is the key points out of the ISP consensus diagram. I want to now show you, I want to pivot to, to where we're going. Give you a taste of the future, and it's right, it's right here, it's right around the corner. I'm going to draw upon studies from other fields that are, in some cases, a couple few years ahead of us and moving, moving very rapidly. So, first, another pain study. This one recently also just came out. This one was last year. And we extended the MAP network, and we asked, can we develop a prognostic biomarker? Can we determine the natural history of a woman with pelvic pain and take a snapshot of her brain now and determine whether she'll get better or worse three months later? And so we did that, and we trained a machine learning approach, and it turned out that we can, that based upon brain network activity, we can determine whether this woman will improve or not get better in three months. 
Now, it turns out it falls apart at six months and 12 months. It just doesn't work. But at three months, it was pretty good accuracy. And that's exciting because, again, we're taking the first steps towards developing a cool biomarker in that. This one is one of those entirely different fields that I alluded to. This one is uh, done by Vinod Menon, who studies kids and a lot of cognitive aspects. And so what he did is he took third graders. And he, uh, these kids were going to undergo math tutoring. So he gave them a battery of tests, aptitude tests, IQ tests, and neuroimaging tests before they then went on to get math tutoring. After they got math tutoring, they had some degree of improvement or not improvement in their math skills. They went back and correlated that with the aptitude test, the IQ test, all the pen and paper stuff. Can we predict at baseline whether little Johnny or little Susie is going to get better with math tutoring? The answer was no. Nothing could predict. They looked into the brain imaging data, and they found that with very high degree of accuracy, they could predict whether little Johnny or Susie would get better with math tutoring based on um, volumetric analysis, how much gray matter is in the uh, hippocampus, and connection from the right hippocampus to these frontal brain regions. That's pretty cool and pretty scary at the same time. If any of you, any of you guys have kids? Okay. Anybody ever seen this movie? Okay. Classic. If you haven't seen it, go Netflix it or whatever. And it's, it's a classic movie about uh, the use of genetic targeting, you know, to shape society and those who have and those who have not. Imagine a misuse of this technology. Imagine that your kid has to get scanned to determine, you know, whether they're going to get math tutoring or in what classes they're going to be. That's what frightens me. Now, and I'll tell you, the kids that didn't get better, by the way, you know, obviously I, you can quickly pick this apart. Did they not get better... Um, because of the math tutoring in them, or is it because it wasn't the right type of math tutoring for that kid? And so that's where you need neuroscientists, clinicians, ethicists, all coming together to discuss these incredibly complex, nuanced topics. Okay. This was a cool study on treatment response. This gets back to this gentleman's question earlier when I opened up about why are you here. This one was done by Lee Williams, who, um, Stanford, we stole her from uh, Australia. And we brought her a kitten caboodle over with a whole bit to, to Stanford. And she's got an interest in developing brain-based biomarkers around mood disorders. And so she takes a large group of patients who are depressed and scans them with a variety of different approaches and gives a bunch of behavioral measures beforehand, puts them on antidepressants, and then determines, can we predict the treatment response based on these measures? And it turned out with 80% accuracy, they could determine whether somebody would get better by giving an antidepressant. And the way they did that was doing an interaction of both brain imaging markers and then also patient self-report. In this case, early life stress exposure and amygdalar engagement, reactivity, predicted 80% or more uh, accuracy. And in the depressed people, there was a higher rate of remission. This means people remitted and got better for those who had high early life stressors and amygdala hyperreactivity to the socially rewarding stimuli and those who had low ELS 
and the opposite direction on the amygdala to both rewarding and threat. That's pretty cool. And this was in a regular group of patients. So this is getting us now a step closer to developing these brain-based biomarkers to predict treatment outcome. Here's another one. Now it's getting bigger. Every, you know, the, the, the effort's getting bigger here. And this one was a multi-center consortium of 1,200 individuals that were across 17 uh, international research sites. These are people who also have depression. The psychiatry field is still several steps ahead of us. And what they did here is they took a discovery group where they trained a pattern to determine can you get a preliminary set of clusters of different biotypes of depression. Because what we've learned is depression is not depression is not depression. That there's different, there's different categories of depression. Much like when you think about fibromyalgia. It's not just one condition. It's a spectrum of different clusters. And then what they did is they optimized it on another 711 and then they did uh, validation of it. And then they had a subgroup where they looked at treatment responses. And here's what they found. First of all, they were able to find four biotypes associated with distinct pattern of symptoms and uh, functional connectivity. And here, along this axis, is anxiety-related connectivity. Here is anhedonia-related activity. And what they did is they found clusters, four different clusters, that grouped into these different categories, clusters one, two, three, and four. And they were able to cluster these people into these different areas with about 80 to 90% accuracy, sensitivity, and specificity. A group of these, about 150, had TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation over dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And what they found is that only cluster one responded to the TMS, and they were able to predict that with about 90% accuracy as to whether that person would respond to TMS. That's, I just think that's getting cooler and cooler and cooler as we move this along. And it's giving us a taste of where this field is going. So where is our field going? Well, what we're all in the process of doing, it's not just us, there's large groups out there doing this, is combining multimodal imaging approaches. That's functional imaging, structural imaging, white matter imaging, resting state. Uh, also, we're, we're getting into now uh, more EEG measures. And then combining this with non-imaging sources of data. This is patient self-report. This is the typical actigraphy, you know, the Garmin's, the Fitbit's. It's the um, uh, uh, behavioral measurements. And then what we do is we put all of that into the algorithms. We cluster. And then what we want is a signature, a signature that will give us a way of uh, determining prognosis of that person and stratifying them, surrogate outcome measures to determine whether treatment A or treatment B is working. Again, the outcome of this being precision pain medicine. We're a ways away but we're getting closer. If you'd asked me in 2008 if I was giving this lecture, I'd stand up here and say, it's not going to happen. And in 2018, 10 years later, I'm getting more and more convinced it's going to happen and it's moving fast. So I want to give my thanks out. I want to bring some closure to this because we, we have now time for discussion. These are the people in the lab, the uh, systems neuroscience and pain lab that get all the work done. I'm just the talking head. And I have to give my thanks out to... Uh, once again, them. This is our Twitter handle at uh, Stanford Payne. So with that, with that history and uh, background and now moving into the future, I want to close out with that. And I'd like to now just open this up for some discussion across these dimensions of the neuroscience aspects, the clinical aspects, the ethical aspects. You know, what are your thoughts about this? And so 
let's let's just you know hands up yeah take it away well why i did that <laughs> why i did that was actually motivated by my son so um and uh, tracy and shannon know ian uh, he was born at stanford he grew up there he's been part of the stanford family forever he's now 21 but at the time he was young and in daycare and i was picking him up at daycare and he's a big kid as they know and he moves fast, and he came running across the linoleum floor to hug me, realized he was running too fast. He went down on his knees to slow himself down. He slid across the floor. Bam! He hit his head on the wall and bounced off. And the parents, you could have heard this gasp through the room. So I walked over to him, and uh, I felt his head, and he had a big, you know, hematomato forming, but I didn't have to take him to the ED. And I did what I usually do with Ian, as I high-fived him, and I said, way to go, buddy. And uh, he laughed. He smiled at me. He just laughed. And I had realized at that very moment that that experience hurt me so much more than it hurt him. And so I decided I want to study that. I wanted to understand what is behind that experience of empathy that is so baked into all of us as people and particularly as parents for our kids. So I came back and we wanted to ask this question, are the circuits of empathy the same or different than you're feeling your own pain. Um, so that's, that was my motivation for doing this. And uh, well, what we ended up finding was strong overlap. Uh, I didn't show you the study, the first study we published. Uh, strong overlap in the anterior insular cortex, parts of the cingulate cortex, um, medial frontal gyrus, and, and others. So there was strong overlap with our experience of our own self-experience of pain and seeing other people's, but there are also distinctions. And I actually think this makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint. There's probably a common circuit for the experience of all kind of pain with different inputs coming into it, whether it be from our physical nociceptive, visual, visual pain, auditory, taste. Yeah, and to certain groups of people, different uh, uh, sexes, uh, races, you know, socioeconomic status, all of these things. Well, well stated. Yes, yes, sir. That's why we need to take control of or develop our own data. And that's actually another life mission of mine with a learning healthcare system that I've developed called Choir. We're not talking about it here, but we've published a lot on that, is to develop high-quality data that will help inform us. Anybody have concerns about the ethical aspects of what I've been discussing? Yeah, run with that. I think well stated that, yeah, that, that, that such individual variability to our response to an injury that uh, uh, what we want to do is always objectify and say, you know, what does this person look like? Yes. The question over here, you probably can't hear this over there, so I'll, let me just try to repeat this, is, you know, um, what about treatment responses for people who fail treatment? And in and, and a level, what you're getting at, if I can, is, is to what extent is the person deceiving? Is there deception on behalf of the patient? You know, do they have sec secondary gain issues? Is there uh, legal? Is there workers' comp issues? And... There's a lot of interest in the workers' comp space and the legal space on this very issue, predominantly to prove the person doesn't have pain. Uh, we haven't yet taken the steps around deceiving. I, I, we actually have, and I finished the experiment in our group, we took people who have um, back pain from the past, they no longer have it, and we asked them to imagine it again. We asked people with active back pain, and then we uh, asked people who are healthy controls to imagine they've got back pain. And right now we're trying to see if we can actually find tease that apart, it's a first step towards understanding this issue of deception. By the way, that, that, I want to be really clear back on that Joy Hirsch thing. So I was interviewed on a radio, big radio show in Canada, and they asked me what I think of it. And again, I said hogwash. 
And they said, why is that? And they had Joy on the show, and she was still convinced that this was real. And I said, you know, if you, are, if you want to beat the system, if you want to beat that test that Joy did, you go to your local Walgreens, CVS, or pharmacy, and you pick up a tube of capsaicin cream, and you go rub it on your arm, right? And then what you do is when they brush your arm, it's going to hurt, and you're going to get more brain activity, and it's as compared to the other side. Boom, write me a check for a million dollars. Thank you. I mean, that's how easy it would have been to cheat that particular test. And that's why it shouldn't be used in this environment. Um, any questions over here? I've been, I've been, uh, I want, well, uh, did you over there hear what he said? Okay, yeah, so it's a problem of getting people off opioids and helping them wean down and help them compassionately do this. I will tell you, I didn't plant this guy here in the audience, but he just gave a great advert for the workshop that we're doing in just uh, uh, a couple few hours on opioid weaning. So it's, it's a three-hour workshop. And what it's all about is Dr. Darnell, one of, uh, my partner uh, in crime at Stanford, who's a pain psychologist, got a $9 million PCORI grant across four states to study how to help people compassionately and voluntarily wean their opioids. And we're going to be getting at this issue of what do we tell the people? How do we handle these scenarios? So come to the workshop. Um, the, the only problem, I just found out they're charging extra money for it. I, I, I didn't know that. I don't get any of the money. I don't get paid for this. <laughs> um, let me just try to answer your question, and it really comes back to all these cases are individual. A lot of it is based on the tenets of motivational interviewing. And if I could give you just one tip, and you want to learn something about how to help these people do, mo do behavioral change, go read up on motivational interviewing. Uh, there's great videos out there. There's great workshops. And that's at the core of what we're doing with helping people uh, in that. Um, I want to thank you. I want to be clear. We're, we're a little bit over the hour. I'll stick around and I'll take, let's say we'll take questions for another five minutes. I, I want to be respectful. If there's another speaker trying to come in, just get on up here and I'll clear things out. Uh, is, you're, you're up. When are you starting? Oh, no, you're leaving. <laughs> you got other, and if you got other talks to go to, then go to them. Uh, I'll take a couple more questions. Yeah. And by the way, thank you all for those of you who are leaving. Thank you for coming.